Welcome everybody to another episode of Coffee and Open Source, a place where we can talk about open source things and have lots and lots of fun. I got my coffee. I hope everybody else is ready. Today my guest is Noelle Silver. Say hi, Noelle. Everybody, how's it going? Thanks for having me. No problem. So, Noelle, do you want to just talk a little bit about yourself, just high-level intro? Absolutely. For those who may not know who I am, um, and it's kind of, you can easily go find me on LinkedIn, Noelle Silver. There's a long rendition of my career, but in short, um, I've been in enterprise technology my whole career. I started off at IBM, um, and then kind of pertinent to this conversation, I was stolen away uh, to go work at Red Hat. Um, and talk about the same exact technology I was building at IBM, but open source and using you know, maintenance and licensing and all of these different models that I really began to appreciate. They actually called it like the light and the dark side. And I think Red Hat was the light and IBM was dark, but now they're a family. So I don't know how you explain all that. Um, but after that, I went to VMware and uh, really helped during the virtualization when that became a really popular thing right before AWS. and Azure and cloud providers became um, kind of the norm. Uh, and then after VMware, I went to Amazon to work at AWS in education and training. And then Alexa was born. And that kind of catapulted my career into artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, I went to Microsoft to help with uh, Microsoft Cognitive Services, which are applied AI models. Um, I went to NPR for a little bit to run the engineering organization as their VP of engineering. And now, I'm working for a company known as HackerU, uh, which builds university education. Uh, and I'm, it's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk um, you know, to you and have a conversation about this, because I think um, open source is a really big part of an educational journey. Uh, and HackerU is, is kind of where my focus is at now. How do I democratize education and make it easier for people who maybe can't go a traditional route um, to learn more, to learn faster. And it's definitely the way I went. So every big, every big software project I've ever built by myself, GitHub was a huge part of that learning curve. <laughs> so I'm a, a big proponent of vehicles for open source, but also just the philosophy of an open source um, development practice. Yeah, like your, your comment that you just made about how important GitHub is, right? GitHub is so important as at least how I see it from like a software development perspective that if I talk to somebody and they don't have a GitHub, I immediately go, okay. I don't try no. to judge people if they don't have GitHub. I understand yeah. if you don't, because GitHub it, it, to an extent is kind of like a coder's social media. Um, right. So I definitely understand why you might not want to be on there, but I immediately go, hmm, do you? Yeah, you, and I just hired, you know, 12 engineers for HackerU. And that was, that was a, it wasn't a gate, but it was certainly the first like little flag that I'd be like, do you have a GitHub account? Even if you don't, like I'm not a believer that you have to be building original code yeah. all the time on GitHub. But if you've you know, gone into repos and taken a look around, found something you liked, forked it, made some small customizations, anything that just showed, it gives you the ability to demonstrate you know, your interest in community development and crowdsourcing ideas and getting help from people who may know more than you and also even new ideas from people who know less than you. So I've really found it to be, yeah, a good indicator of how closely you might be tied to that kind of sure. philosophy of development. But yeah, as you said, I don't use it as like a gate um, or like a red flag, yeah. but it is a, a, an interesting sign that I can use that someone might be in alignment with the type of development. Well, it's, definitely a, it's definitely a slippery slope, right? Like there's, a large contingent of people that talk on Twitter about this all the time, like, should we use, like, GitHub profiles instead of resumes, right? Or, 
like would you hire somebody if they didn't you know if their github activity chart didn't have a bunch of green on it right yeah like like the ultimate status symbol is like i have no life or i don't care about anything else other than the things i'm working on which if that's your decision you know have at it right um i want to some of us that like you know write code on we on friday night we're like ready to go work on our you know natural language processing uh you know project that we built or climate change you know, data science um an ingestion project or whatever it is and we do it for fun but yeah I, i'm a very very has i use it as a variable like it's one piece of data that is useful to understand how someone works and what they're passionate about but i i would say less than half of the people i ended up hiring actually had an active github account yeah. um but it was a, a tell for me to be like all right this is interesting and as a result um, some of the people that did have a GitHub account were a little bit better at articulating, you know, because you when you build, you know, people are going to see it. Yeah. So they're a little bit better at documenting. They're a little bit better at certain practices that you get good at when you're using GitHub rec- regularly. Um, but those those uh, characteristics are by no means the only thing that I look for. So yeah. um, I think it'd be a disservice to your own organization to dismiss people who don't have a GitHub account. But I do like it when it sits as like, um, I always encourage people, if you have one, to just put it as a featured um, item in your LinkedIn profile mm-hmm. so that it shows up. It's not like the main thing, but it's at least a piece. Um, and unfortunately, recruiters do filter and GitHub is sometimes used as a filtering mechanism. Sure. So, yeah, uh, good idea. it's funny. Like whenever I hear like recruiter, I immediately think like, OK, that this like whenever I get contacted by recruiters all the time, as is anybody that in, te- in tech does, because Tech is just so hot right now, um, yeah. but it's always very telling when a recruiter is, is knowledgeable about things um, versus not. But that's not the point of this discussion. <laughs> I want to yeah. talk about yeah. kind of your tra- your path into open source and like going through kind of you did your chronological order of jobs. You know, I see some interesting things, right? So you the like the antithesis of open source, like IBM, <laughs> yeah. right? And then you yeah. go straight the from there side. to. <laughs> A company built on top of open source products, right? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like you want to talk about yeah, the Red culture Hat. shift? Uh, well, I mean, it was literally when I IBM at the time it was like Y two K, and IBM at the time was like all my you know my parents, their friends were like, if you get a job at IBM, you've made yeah. it, you'll retire there. Like it was back in the day when we spent twenty years at a company, yeah. and IBM even paid you to spend twenty years at a company. Um, the golden parachute or whatever was created just after I started sure. working, you know, there. But that to be said, like it was the pinnacle of like that's where you want to be. Um, and so I was like, this is amazing. And then slowly but surely, Red Hat started really articulating this open source philosophy mm-hmm. and the fact that you're paying three million dollars for this software that has like a six month rev cycle. Yeah. And, like you get updates for bugs that you reported in January, you won't get them till October. Um, and just this old school style style of software development. Now the company has evolved since then. So obviously things are different now, but back then it, they uh, Red Hat started to really, it was kind of like the Apple PC type sure. advertisement, right? Where Red Hat was the cool new thinker, thoughtful, mindful, like um, intentional, open source, crowdsource, everyone's voice mattered. And IBM was like characterized as like the dinosaur. Um, And so it wasn't hard, like within, I mean, I was at IBM for over 10 years. So when Red Hat started to become more popular, they, it was pre 1 billion 
dollars. So it was like early in their yeah. um, their growth. But it was very interesting to me. And I've always been impact driven in the choices that I make to go to companies. I want to make a big impact. And they sold me on the fact uh, that that I, you know, you'd be changing the world. You're sure. basically going to undo all enterprise software sales and put, we were going to change the world and make everyone move to this maintenance model, we're gonna, which kind of works. Yeah. We're going to change the world so much that the, the machine that we're fighting is going to buy us. Yeah. <laughs> so I, the day that happened, I was like, how is that even possible? I mean, it worked out well for everybody at yeah. Red Hat, right? Like, but yeah. it's, it's very funny very that, well. you know, you see this, you know, Microsoft has done the same thing. Like, you know, when Microsoft bought GitHub, right? Like right. you see these huge companies buy like these companies that are built on a community or built on a series of tech that's yeah. like the the kind of the opposite of what you would expect. And, you know, I, right. I can't speak for the Red Hat IBM thing. It looks like it's going well, um, but as being, yeah, seems yeah, as being a, a consumer of GitHub and, you know, somebody who watches things, it definitely seems like GitHub is better for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the changes that are being made, but as with all of these things, yeah. as like community driven projects get acquired by like, it's literally like the enemy that you've been trained is like the enemy. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, there's this contingent of people that just philosophically won't hang. And there are like, there were people that were the cornerstone of Red Hat to me and they ended up leaving and going and now starting a different career in tech, but just basically called that chapter done. Um, and I think that that's unfortunate because, I mean, that just is the nature of things, you know, yeah. not everybody's going to be able to accommodate. And when it's that, like it's, it would be a different story if GitHub bought Microsoft, right? Yeah. Well, um, um, full disclosure, I'm a Microsoft employee. So if GitHub bought Microsoft, I'd be a little concerned just from a valuation <laughs> standpoint, but, um, uh, yeah. yeah, I think luckily that's not how it works, but yeah. the same way, right? If a community driven project exactly. grew and then um, started, yeah. I'm uh, trying to think of an example acquired. of like a small startup -y kind of company buying like a really big company. I'm trying to think of an, of an example of that, but I can't. Like I would imagine yeah. in the social media circles, that's probably true. Cause like yeah. the Facebook, Instagram thing, right? Like from a valuation perspective, I don't know. There's, I don't know, somewhere in there, I feel like. Well, it depends. Seen. Like if you look at five years ago, I, I can't remember exactly when Instagram was purchased, but five yeah. years ago or whenever that was versus now, like it's very obvious which one is the more valuable brand, right? Right, um, right. But back then, I, I don't, I, my memory's not good enough to remember. No, I just remember, but I do know that they were valued, you know, their valuation demonstrated that yeah, they were. So most that definitely. was the future direction. And I see the same thing now with like, apps like TikTok, like somebody's going to buy them, even though they're, unless they decide to be like Snap and just do their own thing. I mean, um, yeah. But back to you, Red Hat, I wanted to share a quick story. Yeah, of course, uh, of course. We're, we're rambling, we're rambling I about I can't like um, other things. Let's talk about yes. open source and Red Hat. <laughs> we can like easily go down that yeah. way. Um, but at Red Hat, one of the most fascinating things I, I saw working there was that the, I guess it's the term, we ate our own dog food. Sure. Um, every single thing we did, including like the financials of the company was run on open source software. That's awesome. Everything, which back then, like there wasn't a whole lot of really strong open source comparative technology to things that you would have bought like Oracle or, um, even Microsoft office, yep. right? Like we were literally using like star office as like our corporate <laughs> or like standard. 
like LibreOffice, I think was the other one too, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it was, it was very interesting to me that we were so confirmed in the fact that open source, like we wouldn't, we didn't want to be seen as someone who would say open source is the only way to go. And then we're going to go buy an enterprise piece of software from someone off the shelf. Obviously that's changed. When I got there, that was the case, even in the five years that I was there, yeah. that evolved. But it was just interesting to me. I thought that as that company started, it was like, these are the rules. And they even had this really cool um, document that you got as a new hire. First, you got a fedora. So that, I think that's all. Awesome. Do you still have it though? Um, I do. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. The fact you're not wearing it right now is disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I don't work for them anymore, so I feel like it's, you know. No, it's fine. Like no, it's fine. I get it. I get it. On the <laughs> right next to my Alexa. Um, but yeah, so the you got a fedora, but they also have, and the fedora, like, logo is called Shadow Man. And the Shadow Man, it would have this, you'd get this doc that said, these are the things that the Shadow Man never says. And it's basically, like, things as a Red Hat person you should never say. Sure. And it was all these trite sayings, like, I don't know, like things that salespeople say on sure. a sales call, you know, like for the win or you know, all these. It, I loved it. I love the fact that we were trying to purposely say, if you catch yourself using one of these trite, meaningless statements, like that's not what we do here. Um, and culture, you know, I think culture was a big part of that organization. I felt like I was the only woman globally on the solutions architecture team. And it was like the golden years. I was like, oh my gosh, if I could do this all the time, yeah. I would. And then of course, grass got greener. Sure. <laughs> Somewhere else. Yeah. But it was it was a it was an amazing time at that time in the company because we weren't really big yet, but we were making really interesting changes. Sure. And I think that's what open source provides, right? That opportunity to like be divergent in your thinking um, and then collect massive support for it. Which yeah, is the model is the model's fascinating, right? You take completely right. open source things and you make money off of it. And you're very, yeah. very good at it. Um, yeah. I think it just goes to show that, like, you know, back to kind of open source equals community, right? They built a community around what they were trying to do. And, you know, like, let's be real, like, Linux is cheap from an enterprise perspective. So, yeah. like, they were able to get some, uh, you know, grow some fan base. So you kind of mentioned grass is greener things, right? Like, obviously going from corporate world to kind of not corporate world back to right. corporate world like yeah but not really um so i went to an organization at vmware yeah i guess uh, yeah i guess vmware is fabric, really super which corporate. ended up getting spun off into pivotal i don't know if you know pivotal yeah i do yeah. yeah but it's very much like red hat so vmware kind of was the ibm and then they spun off this little company that was associated with vmware and emc at the time yep. um and it was like it was like a startup and we had our own valuation and we were pre IPO and, and they finally did IPO. I couldn't wait that long. It was like nine years later. Um, but but some people did very well because they hung in there. I mean, they said we'd IPO in three years and at three years I was like, OK, I'm I don't I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Pivotal has been very successful, right? Like they yeah. they are one of those companies where when you think about just the, in that entire demo, like Pivotal is one of them. Like, obviously, there's some other ones out there, but it's it's definitely very interesting. Like, so I'm guessing that you enjoyed the feeling of like the startup feel at that point, right? Yeah. Because Red Hat sure. at that point was probably like startup feel, 
and yeah, pivotal exactly. pivotal slash VMware child, whatever whatever it was called. Yeah. Is was, the spinoff. Yeah, the spinoff, right? Was that was also a uh, a startup feel. And then eventually yeah. you do go back to corporate world, right? You go to Amazon. Yeah, but then I went to Alexa and it was a startup when I started. Sure. I was you're finding, I, it, seem, it seems so. to me like you're finding like open sourcey type of like community led niches inside of these mega corporations. That is, yes. I would say I'm pretty particular about yeah. the types of opportunities. And there are some companies that want to create these initiatives, but don't have them yet that have tried to, you know, attract me to build it. But I'm not really interested in like ground up, build a community from nothing. That is extremely hard work. And it's very, it's not really about like evangelism, which is what I'm good at. It's more about like logistics and infrastructure and, you know, like the meat and bones of a community. Um, I like to come in right after that's built and foster, right? The yeah. stoke the fire, not like build the fire. <laughs> yeah, no, um, like building things is hard coming from somebody yeah, who it's really I've hard. never really. And for some people are awesome at it yeah. and that's their like special superpower. I've never it's like built nice. anything in my entire life. I was thinking about this a couple of months ago. Like if I actually ever finish anything, like I've built many, many things and then stopped the second the things yeah. are like kind of done. And I'm like, that's good enough. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the 80%, I think 80% rule. There's some husbands that are like this that are like into building and yeah. they'll build things 80% and be like, I feel like it's good. <laughs> and I know my yeah. friends are like, are you serious? Like you have to put a, uh, you know, a handle on that. You can't just leave it yeah. um, half stained uh, because, they, you know, you lose interest if you're like, uh, you know, innovative and you're constantly coming up with new ideas. Once you get almost to the end, you're kind of like, you can see the end. Mm -hmm. So you don't really need anyone else to see it. And you kind of move on to the next thing. My first thing that I built, um, and I did make it open source, and then people started using it. That might be an interesting story to tell, but was my Alexa skills. Yeah. So working on Alexa, I built over 100 skills for Alexa in the first year of its life. Um, I was in the, the first, there was like 1,000 skills on the platform, and I had like, I don't know, 110 of them mm -hmm. were mine. Um, which I, oh yeah, I had 10% of all skills on the platform at one point because I got a shirt that said like 10% of Alexa. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a flex right there. Yeah. That is right? the like, it's like, flex. I mean, it only lasted like, you know, a minute in oh, the yeah, whole yeah. scheme of things, but <laughs> um, yeah, it was really funny because I was like, oh my gosh, if I build two more skills, I'll have 10% of all the skills. <laughs> that's awesome. That was pretty funny. I wanted um, to kind of talk about it. Yeah. I, I want to, I want to kind of talk in like talk a little bit about your path into open source. Like we talked about kind of your career progression. So do you remember the first time you ever consumed anything open source? Like it doesn't have to be as a part of your job or it could have been something you came across. I'm always curious to know like when people are like, oh, this thing is like free and I can yeah, just like look at I would, it. I mean, I would definitely say it was the day I started at Red Hat. Yeah. I mean, it was like from zero to fire hose, sure. everything you do is open source. Um, but as a developer, the first time I really used open source to learn a thing and then build a thing was Alexa. Yeah. Um, Cause I'd never like to what you had said, I never actually finished anything up until I never published it. I never, it was never anywhere where I could make money on it. Like it was never like mm -hmm. deployed. Um, and so GitHub was a first or using GitHub to build Alexa skills was the first time I had done that. And I was part of the team that helped build the lighthouse examples because I was just super passionate about if I'm going to teach someone to learn, they may, they're not going to learn from a book and we don't have time to write a book. Like we, we need this puppy to launch in like three weeks or four months or whatever it went, ended up being. Um, and the only way I felt people could do that is if you gave them like seven to 10 
awesome examples that they could then fork, customize, push together, mold to create their own. And that became my platform for like a year and a half. I went around the country, around the world, talking about here's your seven, you know, baseline functions for Alexa. Go build your own stuff. And people ended up building almost exact replicas of those, which frustrated me. Part of the open source philosophy, right, is like I shouldn't care how people use it. Um, but I, I have skills on Alexa that are being outranked by people who literally copied line for line my GitHub repo. I mean, that's a mar- that's a marketing <laughs> and I can't win. Care. I see that as a marketing win. Like you didn't market your stuff good enough. That's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it basically just shows me like you could have done that if you want. If I got to 100 percent instead of 80 percent, yeah, <laughs> easily. But I'm not. I mean, it's not really a moment of like I'm not disgruntled about it. It's actually quite flattering. Yeah. Um, but it does go to show that, you know, when you're in open source, it's a constant check to your ego. And I think it's a good check. Like you, sh- I don't really want to claim ownership and it's not really mine, yeah. right? Like I learned from so many people in building the skills that I have. And then I made mine open source so people could build on the shoulders, right? If people have gone before yeah. them, instead of starting from scratch with the baseline, they could start with mine, which are kind of evolutions of that baseline. And that's in my mind, one of the best features of having an open source community where people can continually build on top of each other. It's one of the reasons where, you know, I have an open source philosophy at HackerU around our content development. And I really want, you know, people that are teaching the curriculum, people that are taking it to have the ability to go in and see the content and add feature requests and do pull requests. And, you know, and of course my company's like, wait, who's going to manage all of that? And I was like, don't worry about it. We'll be fine. Um, I'm like, it manages itself. I literally said that in my head. I'll figure this out. But being able to let the people that are consuming it and using it, like the instructors, have the power to provide immediate feedback and better yet actually change a thing. I can't tell you how many times I've done something and been like, I could fix that for you right now. Yeah. If you just let me. And if it's not in GitHub, I it's you know, or something similar like Bitbucket or whatever, it's very difficult to do that. Um, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you let people that are passionate about what you do do it for free? And it's a pull request anyway, but there's yeah. some organizations that are dead set against it. Oh, sure. Just just as a comment, right? So that statement that you made, right? It fixes itself. You know, that's probably in the book, the Red Hat book of things you're not supposed to yeah. say. No, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that you know, we so like throughout, like you, it seems to me that you've had like this affliction, not affliction. That's a terrible walk. way to say it. Um, oh, we're on the move. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. Um, So one of the things that you've kind of been drawn to. No. Sorry. No, you're fine. Carry on. Your multitasking is really important. It is. It's very open source philosophy, like. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) If people can't deal with it, they can. uh, They can leave. Um, Yes. But don't leave. Sorry. Don't leave. Um, So you know, through your through your career, I've definitely. You know, as you're talking, you get very passionate about learning new things and giving the information that you've given or the skills that you've learned to others, right? And I imagine that's yeah. probably led you to where you are at HackerU, right? Do you want to just talk a little bit about what their charter is and what they're, you know, what they're for? Yeah, absolutely. So HackerU uh, started off actually it's an Israeli company that's now created a new branch in the United States, and they are very well known for their cybersecurity curriculum. Um, it's like the best in Israel. It has created many, many amazing um, professionals that are currently here in the United States and all over the globe. 
Uh, and they wanted to then expand. Obviously, cybersecurity is one area, and it's very IT pro kind of focused. So they wanted to get into software engineering. So just recently, they hired me to build the programs around data science and analytics and full stack development. And the what I really like about HackerU is they, as all of us know, the university system is kind of being checked right now, right? Like, what are we going to do in a scenario where people are not going to be going in and doing like lecture hall yeah. learning? And they're paying for that experience. So the business model is literally shifting as we speak. And so HackerU is coming somewhat to the rescue to say, hey, big universities, those are the only people we partner with, um, big university like University of Miami, here is what we can do. We will build for you a program using industry experts. So that's one distinction. We are not driven by academia or research grants, right? We are actually going to the industry and hiring professionals to not only build the content, but deliver the content. And then we're making it extremely cheap so that anyone, you know, we want to democratize access to university education, lower the price to a point where someone who maybe would not have ever thought they could go to a university now has the opportunity to do that. So it's very similar to like a boot camp type sure. experience, right? We all know those coding yeah, exactly. out there. But HackerU is a little bit different because these are going to be, you know, part of a university brand and you get a university experience and a university instructor or professor. Um, so I really like the the idea of, wow, somebody who is right now on a path, I was this person, I was in high school and my economics professor was like, you'll never graduate from high school, I'm never gonna pass you in this class Jeez. for whatever reason. Cool. It sucks for me. Thanks, guys. And I, of course, I, I basically dropped out of high school and went to college and they took me, so it was fine, it all worked out. Yeah. But, but how many people get that told to them and they don't have it in them to go, you know what? I don't actually care what you say. I'm going to go take my SATs, do really well, and go to college without you. Most people just think that that door is now closed, yeah. and they go become a cashier, or not that there's anything wrong with it, but they take whatever job they can get at that point, yep. thinking that the opportunity is lost. So my hope is going into these different areas like Detroit and into areas like Miami and be able to show you know, high schoolers and community college people, like there's an option for you, and you can get a university-branded education that will now open the door to an entry level position where you can now make 80 to $120,000 a year. Yeah. Like that's life changing. Oh people. yes. And I just, every time I hear of like a single mom, you know, right. Who's in community college who never thinks they're going to make more than 40,000 a year goes through this program and gets her first job at 80 doubles their income in 10 months. Yeah. Like I get goosebumps, you know, thinking oh. about it. Like that's, that's why, I mean, I loved NPR. I love working. Like that was an amazing, that was like the pinnacle of my career. But hearing this mission, I was like, oh, no, we're doing this. <laughs> yeah. So it, unravel kind of a little bit how it works a little bit. So you mentioned that you bring in content developers and content and people to deliver the content, right? So yeah. is the goal for it to be an available asset for non-university students or is it very much for university students? Well, I guess the idea is that the concept of a university student changes. changes so yes. you do have to go in and you have to be part of the program. We have cohorts. But you're now no longer in this, like, if you're UM and you have 110 seats, right, for mm -hmm. a semester or 300 seats or whatever it is, it's a finite number. We, as an organization, can scale to meet demand. Yeah. So I hire as many instructors as I need to create as many cohorts as we need. Sure. Um, and so, it, and because of the price point, people that are different than the typical person that would, you know, get the nice letter in the mail, maybe you got one that was like, congratulations, you got into UM. Sure, yeah. Um, that was a scarce thing, 
Like there were, across the country, there's only like 30 or 40 universities and they only had a couple hundred spots and there's a million people that would like to take that education. Yeah. So that's, I think the difference is that you now you could be a university student and not have that traditional entry point that yeah. we've seen for decades. Um, we wanna really flip the switch on technical education um, in that way. No, that's absolutely amazing. I, the first thing that I think yeah. of as well is that, um, like the first thing is it's introducing a new avenue for people, that, you know, alternative forms of education, right? Um, yeah. The the bigger the, one of the things that I that I see that's um, maybe a little bit unclear. So with you already existing university professors, like say for instance you're a computer science professor at the University of Miami, right? So yeah. are you partnering with this program at all? Or are you simply, this just lives off here, you teach your students yeah, and then they teach other students? That's right. So, and, and it's because the goal of the programs would be different. If there's a computer science program, chances are it's going to be very academic. It's sure. going to be very lecture driven. There'll be some trite hello world examples and maybe some canned, you know, filled out examples, but it's, it doesn't really, it's not super, it's not driven to make you a builder. Yeah. Right. So like for my full stack course, our objective is not learn these things. Like our objective is, can you build code and survive a coding interview? And that's not the, that's not been the objective of university education. Like there's no, like there's a career services place where you would go and maybe try and look on a job board. Yeah. But this is literally geared towards, and, and I do this in a way of, I have a really extensive, you know, network on LinkedIn and I reach out to people and I'm like, Hey, if you have an open job for a data scientist, what business problem are you trying to solve? Yeah. And they'll tell me, they'll be like, oh, well, we need, you know, somebody who's going to be able to do time series forecasting for this type of business problem. And so now that's a project that we will build into our curriculum. Because if we tightly align the problems our businesses have with the, the projects the students do, and they sit in a room together, right, that conversation becomes easy, especially for people, I find, uh, people of color, people in marginalized communities, they really struggle with confidence, even after taking a program. Like they struggle with like, can I make it? Like, am I sure? I was just ten months ago, you know, not thinking I'd ever do this. Yeah. How do I sit in a conversation and act like, yeah, I got this, right? Like it's hard for them. But if we align those projects so that the conversation immediately starts off on the same foot, like I already know how to solve the problem that you're asking me to solve. I feel like we enable them to be more successful. Um, but even on top of that, we're encouraging them, you know, to build projects they're passionate about. So one of our big, we call it a North Star at the company is impact. And so how do we align the work that they do as a engineer? This is where open source comes in. How do I make sure that the projects that I'm building in the course first aligns with maybe some nonprofit or some small business in the area? And then I don't want to necessarily commit to that business. I'm going to solve your problem. But I want to know what your problems are. I'll build them with it, you know, as a student, I will build them out and then I'll stick them on GitHub and that company or all companies can go and use that code. And it so it creates this like reciprocity cycle of the student knowing the problem of the community, building a solution for it, open sourcing it. And then who knows, a nonprofit that uses that code or looks at it and gets inspiration, they might come back to that student and go, hey, you want to come work here or have an internship or, you know, it just creates relationships. So I think it's really interesting. That's that's awesome. I th and I think one of the things that really resonated with me as somebody that went through a typical like, hey, this is a college program to like have you be an IT professional or a developer. Like it's to your point, like tons of hello worlds or they weren't hello worlds, but it's like, hey, write a big O notation thing. Right. right. I'm like, cool. All righty. Like, am I ever going to use yeah. this? 
And the first yeah. thing you find out when you get into a career in technology is like, oh, like the the concepts None make of sense. That. But like you very <laughs> much like, and I've been very, I I am probably at the the opposite end where you don't need like a tech degree to be in tech. Like you just need yeah. very good problem solving skills. Right. Um, and it sounds to me like you're sitting in the middle of that, right? Where else right. you you, you need the concepts to like be able to build algorithms and things like that, but you also just need like skills to yeah. be able to see and something and like, done it. how do I walk through, what steps do I need to complete this? And that's awesome. Yep. Like yeah. looking back, that's the one thing that I regret about college is like, I really never built anything that like could stand up, right? Yeah. You're building a lot because, you know, college, and, I'm, and I don't want to beat down the, the, university uh right like it is what it is it is what it is we've got a bunch of people our entire workforce is based on this philosophy (laughs) yeah exactly right like Um, you can only have so many tas grading like you know 600 lines of code or whatever it is right um yeah that's awesome so we're literally in this like perspective of how do we scale the unscalable yeah because the tendency of a university program would be to do the things like, how do I create a project that I can easily grade or even automatically yes. grade? And we had to resist the, t- the temptation sure. to go that route yeah. and say, no, we actually need to either small, you know, make smaller cohorts or hire more TAs, but we need, like that's, that's where the value is. Like having someone do a peer review with you, right? Go through your code, tell you what you've done wrong, tell you, you know, like we had this checklist that said, Make sure in, you know, when you post your uh, project in GitHub, you have a readme. And mm-hmm. technically I could write a piece of software that checks to see if they have a readme. Yep. But that, the readme isn't actually the goal. The content right? is, yeah. What would be in there? Yeah, how the transition, how do you explain your code to someone? Um, how do you make it accessible to more than just like your, the demographic maybe you represent or the one that you're building for? Um, how do you make sure that all of that is in the readme and really only an engineer who's done it before and maybe has done it for a long time can really give you that feedback. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think part of ed tech and part of changing the way we've always done things is looking at new ways of learning and how do we use, you know, like most, most universities are using GitHub, but are they using it in like an innovative way? Like now they're using it more like a file system, right? Go put your project in there. We want to teach people like how do you build software that can then be scaled beyond your usage yeah. and there's more to it than just sticking your files in a file system <laughs> oh know, like, most definitely um, yeah that's that's brilliant i i i have tons of questions right and i think we could probably keep talking i want to make sure that there's a couple of things that that we talk about like how easy is it is to get enrolled how easy is it to do what how easy it is sorry how easy it is to get enrolled oh in like a course yeah uh, I mean, it's option. Oh, that's actually a great question. So one of the differentiators we've done with our programs is we created a 30-day intro, 30-hour, sorry, 30-hour intro class. And so anyone can join. There are zero prereqs. Our goal is to take someone literally who maybe dropped out of high school. We're hoping for like pre-cal, right? Like algebra would be good, yeah. <laughs> especially in our data science courses. But Probably. I am one of those people that also believes heavily in aptitude. Like if you know how to learn, I feel like you can learn anything. Um, it just, you know, might be harder for some than others, but I do have a, a strong belief that you don't need any, you don't need prereqs. You just need the desire and aptitude to learn. Um, but yeah, so to enroll, especially in the intro program, all you do, like you'll get, uh, you go to the website, you click enroll and they will, the admissions counselor will call you. And we don't want just anyone, right. Just taking it, 
for fun. You do have to pay for it. It's not much. It's like 500 bucks or something for the intro course. Super comparable to like something you'd get on, you know, Pluralsight or sure. Coursera. Um, and in that 30 hour course, you get, it's basically the best and the brightest, right? It's literally the hook to how do you, what are you going to do and what are you going to be capable of by the end of the 10 month program? Yeah. Um, but we also want it to be meaningful. We want you to walk out of it and actually be like, you know what? I could probably get an entry level job doing a piece of this role, or I could go on Upwork and start doing some freelance projects with this intro class. Like we want to show people the opportunity and, and also we're big believers in the community, which is why, you know, I felt like this conversation would be so fun yeah. because part of we're building this cohort and this cohort is going to like, it's a life changing thing. Sometimes you know, even though it's, I think the whole program's like $18,000, which is half of what most boot camps are that are this length and certainly associated with the university. So it's relatively cheap, but for someone where it's like, you know, they're making 18,000 a year or making 20,000 a year. Um, and those are the types of people we want to really look at. This is a huge investment for them. Yeah. And so there's a lot that goes into that a lot more than just like, Hey, you're going to learn to code. They're going through like imposter syndrome. They're going through like uh, life-changing, you know, so our instructors, oh, in addition sure. to being um, industry experts, they kind of have to be life coaches, right? They ha we have to, we've created, because we're data people, metrics that kind of can track how well someone is doing, like how many times they had to take a quiz. Sure. And then we don't just send them an email and be like, hey, you better do that two more times or mm -hmm. go read this chapter, right? We hop on the phone with them or we get on a Zoom call and we're like, what can we do? Let's work through something together. Let's go through your application. Let's Find something you're passionate about. And that's what I love about our projects. It's like, we're going to tell you to build a game, but we're going to say, like, what is it that you love? Do you like yoga? Are you like you into weather? Are you into whatever yeah. it is? And then let's build a project that you'll be proud to do and proud to show your family, proud to show your friends, and then ultimately proud to show an employer. Um, and those are not the liberties that you get in the traditional education, you know, boot camp uh, program. Like, there's not much wiggle room. Again, this is scaling the unscalable yeah. because now we have to figure out how do we scale that. Um, but I think it's worth it because you'll end up with people that can succeed because the whole time, just like you said, it's problem solving. Yep. It's less about here is the theory behind the model, like in our case, in our data science, like we're going to go through seven different models that they're going to build from scratch, but we never actually call out the model. Yep. I mean, we do in the class, but in the like in the syllabus, sure. it's the problem that we're solving. Mm -hmm. And then we we do it in the context of the model that we write. They're like, oh, this happens to be, a, you know, a, a, a different type of model that maybe solves for like a time series model versus a, sing, a singular classifier. All of these it doesn't make sense to say that to someone who's never been. And it's actually intimidating. And sure. most books, they go right to like the most technical term yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's almost like if you go read Medium articles, it's almost like people don't want you to want to learn, right? Like, it's like, no, 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 we are way too complicated over here. And so our hope, especially with data analytics and data science, is to demystify that and realize, like, it's really just like anything else. Mm -hmm. Everything's hard if you don't know what it is. So let's give you a path to get there and align you with the problems that your businesses have. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a big part yeah, that, that's of great. why, what makes it different. I, I kind of equate it to, you know, when you're, when you're, we're children and we're learning math, right? Like right. showing you an equation is not helpful to like a seven year old, right. but right. you know, if this car is going 45 miles an hour, how far will it drive in, in two hours? Right. Right. Like exactly. Or put ice cream in there or anything. Yeah. Like, like if I have five off. apples and I eat four apples, I'm going to have a tummy yep. ache. Um, uh, but I, 
one thing as well that's in, that I have a question about is, so obviously the goal is to bring in new developers, right? So, but what about existing developers? So like folks that say, for instance, I'm like a junior career developer. Change kind of people? Say that again? Like career change people? Yeah, either career change or people that they're already in tech, right? But they just feel like maybe they've done a lot of job interviews and they just, they keep getting turned down. It's because they're, they, they found out over the course of maybe a year or two that like they're not strong in this particular area of tech. Like maybe they're a data person and they're, you know, doing hardcore software dev or they've right. been stuck doing systems admin work when they really want to be a, a DevOps person. Like yep. it, it, I'm guessing those type of people can come in as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, uh, we see basically three types of students. One is a career changer, someone who is coming from sales or coming from business development, and they have always wanted to get into technology, but never felt like, A, it was affordable because there is a myth in data science and data analytics that you have to have like a master's degree and you have to go all the way and have multiple PhDs. And now as AI and machine learning has become commoditized and they are now in production in normal companies, which before was just R&D. So it made sense because it was academic in nature. But now AI is like running in production at NPR. So if that's the case, we're less really worried about like how many years you spent in school and more worried about can you do this thing, which is why boot camps are are so successful. Um, So one is like a total shift of a career into a space you don't know. Another, as we mentioned, is one that you have no experience whatsoever in tech at all um, and maybe never got to a, you know, a traditional university level education. But the third one is, and really it's infinite, but the third bucket we've kind of thought about from a persona perspective as we're developing the curriculum is that person that wants to just shift domains, right, where they've got some core understanding or knowledge in software engineering and, um, you know, baseline understanding of like statistics and math, but they want to now shift and get deep expertise in analytics or business intelligence or um, what's the other term we use? Like, anyway, there's a bunch of different roles that all kind of do the same thing. Sure. Uh, and and so our job is to really show people what are the, what's the basics that you need to know to be uh, qualified in this role. Now our output though, we are looking for people our deliverable is to get someone an entry level job in the field of either data science, data analytics, or full stack web development. So mid-career people, it might be less applicable, sure. right? Because you might not want an entry level. But there are also people that are in careers in their in mid-career that are like, I hate my job. Yep. And so why wouldn't you start over? I have started every company I've been in, I've started over. <laughs> you know, yeah, like well. I was at the top of my game at a company and then I go to the new company. I'm now the new person, I have no team, and then I have to build myself up, become a people manager. Like I climb the ladder all over again. Um, and I actually don't mind it because I like learning and I like being an IC or independent contributor before I become a manager. Sure. So I think it's fine and we welcome those students, but it's less likely that someone would be willing to take an entry level job in an industry yeah. because we all feel like we're sometimes sure. better than that. So that's how people come to the, the as consumers of the program, right? So you, you kind yeah. of talked about scaling the unscalable, right? Like so, how do you how do you forecast how many content developers do I need, or how many lecturers or content deliverer 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 is not a word uh, yeah. people who deliver content? Like how do you scale Professors, that? Yes. Um, so we it's a four hundred 
hour course, including that 30 hour intro course. So 370 hours. And I literally, you know, put on my PM hat and wrote out a roadmap. Um, and then I looked at in basically my delivery time, right? Cause everything's a function of either the time, the number of people you have, the tech that you're using. And so I went in and looked at, all right, I want to get this out by next February, which is our current launch date for full stack. So I want to get it out by February and make sure the world gets it in February. So now I worked backwards from that, you know, just like any normal project manager would sure. do. Um, and then I realized I needed, you know, five people to be able to do that job well. And so I hired five people. But the nice thing about, you know, our mission as a company is that we recognize we're going to scale the unscalable and we're going to need more people. Yeah. Um, and so we are constantly evolving that number. So even just today, I realized, oh, you know, for analytics um, and data science, which are in the same course, we want at the end, you will take, you know, you're going to get all of this baseline functionality, which if you look at like a Venn diagram of data science and analytics, they're actually overlapped quite a bit sure. in the foundation of like data, just management yeah. and data understanding and data engineering. Um, and then they split off where it comes to like research and models and forecasting versus, you know, visualization and story communication and, yep. you know, business value. So what we tried to do is like separate, basically give you the baseline and then allow you to, to break out into electives, right? That would allow you to specialize for a specific role within the industry. Interesting. Yeah. So, so say for instance, I'm, you know, I've public speak, let's just take me for example. I'm a public speaker. I've been a developer off and on my entire career. And I'm very captivated by the story you're telling. And it's like, I, you know, I've been teaching for, you know, for a long time, whether it's teaching younger developers in my job or giving right. presentations, or maybe like I this. author on Pluralsight. How do I get a job? Yeah. So literally right now, there, you can go over to HackerU and just apply. Um, so because we're building our programs right now, I always encourage people just send me, like go on LinkedIn and be like, hey, Noel, I heard you on Twitch. <laughs> um, here's my, you know, information. And I just add it to my list of potential instructors. The beautiful, beautiful part about this right now is that due to the unfortunate nature of our world and that we are remote, you can be a adjunct professor at any of our, you know, approved universities, no matter where you are in the country right now. Um, which is my next amazing, question. right? Yeah. So you don't have to be like, if you're going to be a Miami instructor, you'd have to be in Miami and who knows how long that'll last, right? I'm presuming at least for the next year, two years, yeah you know, vaccine future, who knows. Um, but it also, I think it's part of how the model is changing. Exactly. Um, because we don't, I care less about the physical location and I hope more companies think this way, but I care less about the physical location than I do about the industry expertise combined with the ability to inspire and motivate these students because these students are coming, like this is their last hope in some cases, right? Like they're like, if I don't pass this, I'm in trouble. Like mm. I just spent, you know, this money, this needs to be my future. And if they start to fall behind, we need instructors that aren't, I don't know if you had these instructors, but my professors in university didn't necessarily care about me as an individual. And I don't think it was a race or gender thing. Like, I just think that that wasn't why they were there. Like they came in and they're like, look, I don't get my research funding unless I spend three hours with you people. So here I am. Here's my talk, read the book. Or, make sure you don't miss a deadline. Or to be even more <laughs> you know, cynical than that, I'm trying to get tenure, yeah, and you're a face yeah. until I get tenure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not you know it's not student focused or customer obsessed as some of us would say, right? So this is our opportunity for us to look at the thought leaders and 
I mean, how many thought leaders always thought, man, it'd be cool to teach at a university, but would never have done that just because of the scenario that, that, that it requires. And most of the time you have to have a master's degree yep. or a PhD to do that. And so this is really like flipping the script, you know, on typical university education. And in my mind, it brings who the person, the student needs even more closer to them, right? The person who's in the job, yep. doing the work. Um, and that this community of instructors is like their family, like carrying them through. And, you know, my goal, uh, as I look at my team that I just created, you know, I look at our Zoom and it's like this beautiful symphony of colors and shapes and sizes and gender and That's awesome. all sorts of things. Like, I love it because when I, I got the, I had the luxury of building that team like from scratch. So it was easier to do. It's 12 people. It's yeah. not hard. Um, but I want the exact same thing for my instructors, right? I want anybody who's sitting in a seat in my class to look up at some point in the course and go, that's me. Yeah. And I never had that as a kid. I never, like, I always wanted to be in tech. I never saw a Hispanic woman up there, you know, ever. Yeah. Um, until I was in my 30s. So, yeah, I just, I really want us to, and even if they don't exist, like, one of the things, if there's anyone, like, listening that's like, oh, man, I wish I could do that, but I am so not, you know, us, people that get on and do podcasts and, like, teach. But if there's a part of you that likes this story and wants to contribute to the lives of these engineers, as long as you are doing the work and you're passionate about helping them, like, that qualifies you. Um, you know, we're not looking for people that are professional trainers. Yeah. We're actually definitely not looking for professional trainers. Well, we're looking for people like you and I that are professional, you know, engineers or professional data scientists that happen to like teaching too. Oh yeah. Like, you know, I, there's a lot of things that you resonate with. I am, I, unfortunately I, well, not unfortunately, but I was, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of people that look like me in my classes and my teachers and things like that. But I always questioned like why this was always so such a challenge. Right. And especially right. now with, the current, you know, environment that we're in, I still question, like, even in, like in tech, it's like, why do we care about right. anything other than, I don't even care if they're really, really good at being like a developer, like, right. give me some good people skills, give me empathy, give me problem solving yes. skills. And that's it. Like, I don't need anything else. Yeah, I had a, exactly. uh, I had a boss one time tell me, I can teach you literally anything you want to learn, but I can't teach you how to be a good person. And not saying that right. I'm a good person all the time, but like that really right. resonated with me. It's like if I just go about things in a positive way, I yeah. can figure out how to do anything. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about what you're doing in Hacker U is you're also opening not you're not just opening up an avenue for folks trying to get into tech, but you're also giving an avenue for folks who all kind of want to get out of tech. Right. Right? Like right. I you know, take me for example again, because I'm very I'm a narcissist, so uh, uh, like maybe I don't want to be a developer anymore. I'm not a developer right now, but right. if I was a developer, maybe I want to get into teaching and right. I don't have a master's. So academia isn't right. an option. Um, I don't have the, I don't have the patience to be like a Pearl site trainer because right. I just don't have the patience for that. Right. But I definitely can lecture in front of, you know, a, a zoom call or a team's call or right. whatever I can. And, you know, have office hours. I can do all of these things because I love the interaction of feel like I love the fulfillment yeah. of giving back. Like that's something that yeah. I figured out. And the few, light bulb effect, right? Like when yeah. you watch your student go, oh. And it's so <laughs> synonymous too with open source. Like to get back, yeah. circle back all the way with, to this open source thing is that like whenever I talk to people about open source, the first thing they say is like open source is community. And 
if you build a community, you're always going to be successful unless you build yeah. a community that's not that great. And then you're not going to be successful. Right. But I think, right. you know, from, from a perspective of, of tech, if you build a, a community around something that you're trying to accomplish and you're doing it the right way, you're, you're going to be successful. And I think what you're doing yeah. at hacker, you like, it ties a lot to just the open source movement for sure. You're, you're, honestly, you're trying to open source education, like, which right. is a terrifying yeah. comment. But yeah, it's very it like that's how I see it. It's and it's awesome. <laughs> um, but it really is just shifting the business model to be more about transformation of like you know because that's the only way we're going to. I always say like I want to be I want to generate or create a new generation of engineers. Yep. You know, engineers that are just like all the things you just said, optimistic and empathetic and seek diverse thoughts, not just in this, you know physical ways yeah. like ethnicity and gender but you know the value of an introverted opinion and an extroverted opinion and how do we think about people with special needs or most importantly people with like physical disability i think it's just fascinating to me i uncovered that one in five people in the united states have physical disabilities and i've never worked with one how's yeah. that possible how's it possible that none of my engineers have ever had a physical disability that i mean it's not possible so yeah. it makes me wonder at the gate, which is why I decided to move to the front of the funnel, um, how, how do we make sure that this is accessible to everyone, that anyone can become a software engineer? Like you said, if you're passionate, and I can teach you even programming, uh, but I can teach you problem solving. I can teach you how to Google, which is what we all do. <laughs> you know. Um, and I can teach you how to search GitHub and get a good example and a baseline to work from. But the fact that there are an entire population of people that aren't even in our in, you know, in our community are not even available. I had someone reach out to me the other day and was like, oh, you're the first uh, person of color I've seen in the voice community, voice tech community and the Alexa community. And I first was like, oh, thanks. And then I was like, that is terrible. Yes. That is terrible. Yes. How is that possible that I am like the only one? Um, and every time I see like 44 leaders in tech and it's not, you know, it, it's not a symphony of color, size, shape. Personality. Oh, for sure. Right. It's and there's no reason for that. <laughs> but unless I feel like that's why I'm where I'm at now, is that I can actually impact filling that funnel. And if we create the community, right, if we create something that lasts outside of the individual job that keeps people feeling like they're contributing, which is why open source is so powerful, I can maintain my friends, if you will, or my circle, my network in a, in a place like GitHub. And as I move from company to company, I still I don't I don't let that single job get me down or yeah. or dis, you know allow me to dismiss an opportunity in the technical industry which is what happens today people get into a bad job get a bad manager and then they leave the industry like they're like especially i found my you know colleagues that are female and hispanic like our culture is very intolerant of bad behavior so if people make you know have bad behavior we kind of like are like I don't need to do this, I'll go do something else. I'll become a social worker or I'll go become a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer. I don't need to be in tech. But that's a loss for our industry and we've just seen that over the last 20 years. So so I'm trying to figure out how do I change the DNA of the engineers that are, and I'm not like, of course there's going to be, I want all colors, like yeah. white men are still going to be in those classes. Well, um, I hate to I really say it to you, but we kind of run the world for the foreseeable future, right. unfortunately. Yes, yes. Um, someone told me once, uh, an older woman, she was in her 70s, and she looked at me and she said, an entire generation of people in the Fortune 500 
have to leave. Yeah. And she said, die, but I don't like saying it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> like they have to leave the industry in order for this to get better. And I, of course, was like, no, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not waiting. Like I will, I will be at the end of my career by then. And then it's just going to start. So I was like, no, we can start changing the DNA of our engineers right now. And my hope is that companies will see value in those new perspectives and start promoting those people into middle management. Because really middle management has been my biggest challenge. Um, not so much executive leadership, like Satya, awesome. Jeff Bezos even has his own very awesome perspectives on leadership and how to run a company. But then, you know, three layers in, things start to go back to like 1984, sure. <laughs> 1998. Um, and so the, I really think that as a community, as a, uh, I don't want to say younger, but like as a generation that thinks differently about software engineering, which is the GitHub generation, if sure. you will, um, yeah, I feel like we could change the we could change the DNA of these companies um, if there's more of us, and well, so that's why we're that's why I'm doing. Well, is it selfish now. to say that you don't want to wait for the next generation to get the benefits? Is it selfish to say that? Oh no, I mean that's yeah, exactly. exactly right? When that woman said like, that, that's I exactly want, look, what I felt. I might be selfish, but I want to enjoy things. Like yeah, my kids, my kids, they're gonna have their own set of things to deal with and, and things to enjoy. Yeah. Like maybe I want to enjoy things. Yeah, um, I think that yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I'm like, no, wait, no, I'm not waiting 20 years for this. Yeah, like <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Yeah, um, yeah. So and that's why I never left tech. I mean, I've had really bad experiences, like unnecessarily difficult sure. experiences in my career. But I, yeah, I just if I leave, then what? Then that woman would never have found anyone yeah. to represent like who she looks like. And she's young, you know. She just got out of college. She's looking for her first job. I talked to a, a community. Um, it was a, it was actually a, like girls who code kind of event, and they were teenagers. It was like four years ago, um, and I spoke to a teenage group of women, girls, you know, seventeen, eighteen years old, and I gave them my spiel about like women in tech, and this is amazing, and it's it's hard, but it's worth it, and you represent you know this demographic of people that can change the perspective and help diversify the way we do things and all the good things. And then I, of course, showed them how to build, uh, I think I showed them how to build a web app, a web application on S3 or some kind of sure. <laughs> cloud service. And it was very interesting to me that la like just a month ago, one of those girls who's now 23 years old, just got her first job at Microsoft and was telling me like the reason that I stayed was because I heard, I saw you. And of course she's a person of color and she's like, I saw you and you said something. And so I always encourage people, even if they're not a good speaker, like no one starts off good, first of all. Um, but even if you're not a good speaker, there's someone like looking for you, looking to say, is someone out there like me, someone who's introverted, someone who isn't really, you know, who, who maybe is a little socially awkward or who maybe isn't, you know, classically trained as a developer. Is there someone that that is representative of the kind of journey I'm going to have? And I really think that that's part of what makes, you know, this successful is it we have to we all have to do our part to advocate you know to be a representation for people that are whether they're our age whether they're older than us or even of course if they're younger than us but i just feel like being an example of whatever it is that you're doing is a critical part of the community yeah i agree my lens is a little colored. Yeah. Uh, I feel the I feel the importance of every job 
to mirror the 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 look of who we are as a nation, right? Like, yep. if, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are these days, but, like, the numbers in people in tech, percentage-wise, don't equivalent, equivalent, aren't equivalent to what they yep. are in demographics. Like, you know, it's That's predominantly... Right. And by far. Yeah, right? it's like predominantly the- white male when... Like a hundred percent of the war of us is in white male, right? Like right. that'd be a really exactly. crummy country. Yeah. And then our numbers are dismal, right? Like it's good. Like in the last five years, we've started collecting better data, which is amazing. Um, and we've started publicly reporting that data in some companies, which is also fantastic. But the fact that in five years, those numbers have not gotten better. And in some cases they've actually gotten worse. I mean, Latina executives, 1%, like 1%. That's how's that possible? They're, that's not possible. Uh, so I look at them and I'm like, that. What? How do we fix that problem? And that problem, of course, you can't come out of college and become an executive unless you're building a startup, you know. But how do we change like the DNA of the Fortune 500? I just saw an article yesterday that said four. We have four CEOs in the four, Fortune 500 that are people of color. None of them are female. So I, I feel like there's probably an executive that happens to be female and an African American. They probably could manage a, you know, be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but there's something about the way we are running things that doesn't make that possible. But I do, I mean, I am hopeful and optimistic, so I feel like communities like GitHub, like even Twitch, like we build momentum this way, and we can change. At least I've found I can change the way companies think about things because I have a conversation that's not just my voice. So many times I felt like I'm alone. <laughs> I'm a, I'm the only one who thinks this. And that's one of the, I mean, it's very unfortunate and sad about the kind of racial concerns we have that are overt in our country right now, but it helps everybody call things out easier than five months ago, right? Like five months ago, we had the same problems, but today I hear people in board meetings saying like, that's not okay what you just did, you know, like, and I love it. I I feel like, awesome. Let's call all the bad behavior out. Let's do something about it. I still don't see as much action being taken when bad things happen, but at least we're starting to call it out. Um, but I do think community is like, I'll, I'll tell you one really quick story about what happened. It's kind of a sad story, but I went, I was in a new, newly minted executive and I went in and uh, was so excited. I was a new leader. I am the kind of leader that I feel like the company wanted that, you know, I'm diverse. I have a diverse opinion. I think about things very differently. And I went then to join like Slack channels, right? Where all of the people of color and all of the different, like the Latinx community were all, and I joined these Slack channels. And you know what happened? They actually kicked me out. And they said to me something that I believe I have heard before, which is we actually don't want leadership in here. This is for us, our safe environment to complain and vent. And I get it, except I was the different leader. I was the leader that would listen to them and have a space in an executive board meeting to make a change. And literally they were like, you can't sit at our table anymore. And now I'm the only person of color in my executive team. So now I can't sit at their table either. So I'm literally alone. (laughs) But that's where communities like, you know, like GitHub and places like that, where I can go back regardless of the company I'm in and now this weird situation, I have people. And I have my people that like think like me and, you know, we've been coding together for years um, and we've gone through these journeys. So I feel like that's what one of the reasons why community can be so critical uh, that's outside of your current role 
um, because sometimes these things happen and you feel like, wait, if you guys won't be my friend and you guys won't be my friend, I'm going to be, this is not going to be very fun for me. And I've relied heavily on those community networks, you know, LinkedIn, like LinkedIn has become my family. I have cried many tears on a LinkedIn live, like telling my LinkedIn family all the drama that happens at work. Um, but it's always been supportive. I've never had a troll come in and be like, you know, the problem is you, you know, like the, it's always been very sympathetic and positive and inspirational, um, you know, to me, like I've been inspired by sharing and hearing the feedback uh, that people like would be like, oh my gosh, that happens to me in my company or that just happened to me or that happens to me every, you know, two months or whatever. And the interesting thing about that feedback is it was everybody gave me that feedback, all types of people, white men, African-Americans, Latinas, women, all, everybody was like, that happens to me. And I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> Ultimately, it led me to believe that bad experiences happen to everyone. Sure. And the only protection against bad experiences is to have a network in your industry that you feel like likes, cares, and trusts you, right? And, and I feel like GitHub is one. I think Twitch is another. LinkedIn is another. Like, how do you cultivate a group of people that when things are tough, you feel like you could go to them and they'll make you feel better? professionally yeah. we're all in this you know? together and that we're all in this yeah. together to fight the trolls right like right we're all in and this to fight the trolls that bad behavior happens to i think that's the big you know lesson it happens to everyone i mean obviously there are some racial big challenges but everyone gets treated badly and sometimes everyone gets treated about it badly by a middle manager sure. <laughs> you know where you have that experience where you're like wait you're gonna like i'm basically getting fired right now um everyone goes through this at some point in their career some challenge uh, yeah, and so knowing that you're not alone, the only way to really do that is to expand your network beyond your current role. Um, and if you're new to the industry, like start building it now. You know, I always say find people you like and set, ask them for informationals on LinkedIn. Like just be like, hey, I'd love to talk to you for 30 minutes. Yeah. And it's kind of like how we got together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I asked um, a question yeah. about Alexa and people were like, talk to Noel. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> talk to Noel. Yeah, and um, it's probably because she's like, she'll talk to you about it. She's so excited. Yeah. Um, so someone in the <laughs> chat had a really good question. Um, so Michael Crump asked, you know, my daughter is 10 and I've been getting her into programming through Scratch and, and other things like Microsoft Maker. Like what are, for her to start getting started in, in tech, like what is the advice that he can give her? Yeah, so I will um, share with you what I did uh, my, when my son was nine years old we started building skills on Alexa. Um, so it's true for, you could do this with Raspberry Pi, anything that provides immediate gratification, right? You write a line of code and a light turns on. Sure. You write a line of code and an LED displays, or in this case, you write a line of code and Alexa does what you say. Um, we built a, an Alexa skill. The nice thing about Alexa skills is that you could build them using what's called blueprints, right? And it's low code or no code, which is really beneficial because it is still technology, it's still software engineering concepts, but it's not necessarily like you have to write 200 lines of JavaScript in order for something sure. to work. Um, and so blueprints are a great way to get started. But I find that that combination of like a real world thing combined with the technology, like you're not just writing an app, you're building, you know, like, like a way for them to voice control their lights in their room or a way for them to um, build a quiz for themselves to do flashcards for their homework. Seeing a real-world application is hard to do for a 10-year-old, but Alexa skills can do it, Raspberry Pi, Microbits, all of those provide this like real tangible um, connection between the code they're writing and the real world that they're writing it for. 
And I found that that, that worked. So that skill, anyway, that was written, he's now 13 years old. And uh, that skill is now making 60 bucks a month through developer rewards on Alexa. So he's like stoked. Oh, <laughs> you man. Know? He's been on the platform. For 13 like was $60 a month? Yeah. So uh, Alexa, based on the usage of your skill, will pay you developer rewards. Yeah. And yeah, it's really funny that, um, yeah, he's making 60 bucks in the UK, mind you. Like it's not even in the US based skill, it's a UK based skill. Cool. It's called Mythical uh, Unicorn Trivia. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, COVID has one benefit people got way more interested in unicorns. So. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of things that they're better about some countries than the United States, but that's a whole different thing. We're going to go on something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <the> rest, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, so, Noel, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Like, this has been an amazing conversation. Like I said yeah, earlier, really I could fun. keep talking to you about, you know, I'm going to, I'm trademarking the term open sourcing education because I think that's brilliant. Um, yes. I, I think one of the things that we want to call out is that Hacker U, like, there's opportunities for you to join as a student as well as join as a contributor. So, definitely I'm take sure. a look um, at that sort of stuff. And I want to finish our conversation with, um, I already led into a little bit. So I like to ask folks, like when they think of open source, like what's the one word or the one phrase that you, that you think about? Oh, the one word. Um, I guess I would actually use accessibility. Accessibility. Uh, and I like it because it encourages me to really look at lots of different perspectives. So you can, for example, uh, if you look at the Alexa repo, um, you can see how many people and how many different use cases people have used some of these baseline like lighthouse examples for. Um, and so I love the fact that like open source gives you the ability to build something and then potentially see a totally different demographic, a totally different psychographic, like use your code in a way you never thought was possible or you never conceived of even going in that direction. Um, and then that inspires me to go back and re-engineer, right? And and re like rethink about how do I make sure that that audience is you know addressed. So accessibility is really big for me. I have a son with Down syndrome. I have a dad who is 72 but has cognitive uh, disability due to a traumatic brain injury. So I'm constantly thinking like how do I make the world better for them? How do I give them access to the software that I use because I can type on my keyboard or go to my smartphone? How do I make the world available to them? And I can't easily do that uh, if. I don't go back and rethink the way I built my software. You know, our 2000 software, that's not going to cut it because no. we weren't, you know, in, at least on the projects I was on, we weren't super careful about thinking about all the different use cases and being empathetic to all of these different constituents. Like even Alexa, I mean, we basically built it for the 1% of the 1%. Now we're thinking differently about that. And we're like, oh, what about people who have accents from New Jersey? And what about people who have accents from Mississippi? Sure. <laughs> right? But that wasn't what, if we had thought about that early on, we could have solved that problem before anyone ever noticed that it wasn't good at it. Now we're having to catch up, or now Alexa's having to catch up. Um, so I think having community and open source fosters the ability for people to say, hey, what about me? This is how I think yeah. about what you're building. Um, and I love that. That's absolutely brilliant and a great way to end the conversation. So thank you again, Noel. This was great. Uh, and one of the things to call out, so Hacker, Hacker U, again, you can be a contributor as well as you can uh, join and start your career in uh, different data practices as well as software development. So thank you so much, Noel, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Buddy, enjoy and hope you get some more coffee later. Bye-bye.